0: Welcome back to the Diet Doctor podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Today I'm joined by Dr. Christopher Palmer. Now, Dr. Palmer is a board-certified psychiatrist, and he's an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and he's the director of the Department of Postgraduate and Continuing Education at McLean Hospital. Uh, You can find him at chrispalmermd.com and on Twitter at chrispalmermd. Now, what we're going to hear today is really a a wonderful run-through of mental health disorders and the role of nutrition and lifestyle in general, but also ketogenic diet specifically for mental health disorders. And Dr. Palmer is really on the forefront of this field, having practiced it for well over a decade and having contributed to the scientific literature by publishing reviews and publishing case uh, reports um, and has some exciting things, coming down the pike in the future as well on this, so stay tuned for that. He's going to give us a little teaser during this interview. But we talk about mental health disorders, sort of um, why nutrition would work, specifically why ketogenic diets would work and what that means for the type of ketogenic diet or low-carb diet that somebody might need to follow. And also, importantly, where it fits into the treatment paradigm for evidence-based medicine for mild, moderate, or severe mental health disorders. And he has some interesting takes on that, which, you know, provide some caution, um, but interestingly, about using seizure um, literature, so literature about ketogenic diets for epilepsy and how that can then apply to mental health disorders. So an interesting sort of mechanistic combination. Uh, And we go through so many other topics um, with some really good advice, including eating disorders that we talk about at the very end, which he has a really great way of explaining eating disorders and what a restrictive diet means for eating disorders. But another part of this is, is, you know, as with any of our podcasts, this is meant for general advice. This is not meant to give medical advice. So if you're thinking about starting a ketogenic diet or a low-carb diet or changing your, your um, medications or treating any kind of condition with uh, nutrition, please do it under the watchful eyes of an experienced clinician. You can go to our Find a Doctor page at dietdoctor.com to find a clinician who's, um, who's familiar with low-carb diets and ketogenic diets who can help you or just follow up with your regular doctor, because this is not meant to be medical advice for you to take into your own hands and treat your own mental health conditions, right? So please do it under the watchful eye of, of, a, of an, a trained clinician. All right, so with that out of the way, let's get into this wonderful interview with Dr. Chris Palmer. Dr. Chris Palmer, thanks so much for joining me today on the Diet Doctor podcast. Thank
1: you, Brett. Thanks for having me. Yeah,
0: it's my pleasure. It's great to talk to you. I mean, you've been so active lately with your publications, with your speaking engagements about promoting low-carbon keto diets for the treatment of mental health disorders, which is a fascinating field that's really growing both in terms of clinical experience and scientific um, knowledge. But I'm curious, I always like to get back to the beginning because... You know, I know from my standpoint, I didn't receive hardly any nutritional or lifestyle training in medical school residency. And I would assume it's the same for psychiatry, but I'd like to hear from you. How much of what you're, you've learned about nutrition did you gain after your training versus what you gained during your training?
1: Uh, so I'm exactly like you, uh, uh, for better or worse. So my, you know, the, the training that I received in nutrition and medical school was a course that I think was one week long. And uh it it went through basic, you know, at the time it was the low fat diet. The lower the fat, the better. All fat was considered toxic. That included Mm -hmm. things like peanut butter, it included nuts, it included olive oil, um, avocados, every all fats were considered bad for human health. Uh and that was essentially the training that I got. And, you know, we we talked about rare nutritional deficiencies. um, uh, relatively rare ones we talked about things that you need to screen for when you're treating you know people with alcoholism for instance you know make sure you check for thiamine deficiency and other things um, but uh, we certainly didn't learn about using dietary interventions as treatments
0: so even in your psychiatry fellowship was that the same because there is a little body of literature um, that is not all that recent that you know, investigated some nutrition and exercise interventions for moderate depression, which showed it was as good as, or in some cases better than SSRIs. Was any of that taught, or was it still basically focused on pharmacologic treatment of psychiatric disorders in your in your residency training?
1: So, in my residency training, I, I trained. Um, yeah, I trained like twenty five years ago. So uh, at that point. Um, w- 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 We actually didn't have studies demonstrating that uh, dietary interventions can be helpful as a primary treatment with one primary exception, and that is with eating disorders. Um, And so when people come in with anorexia nervosa or bulimia or other disorders and are severely underweight, it has long been known that refeeding those patients and essentially forcing them to gain weight uh, has benefits uh, because they are literally starving to death. They often have life-threatening complications from a starvation syndrome, and uh, whether they like it or not—and uh, usually they don't like it—we, uh, <laughs> the, the the field has essentially force-fed them and uh, tried tried to get them to gain weight. That that was really the only dietary intervention uh, that I, I learned about.
0: Yeah, so so you're like a lot of us and you had to pick all this up after your training and probably had to do it on your own. So give us a little summary of your journey and how you came to realize the benefits of nutritional and lifestyle therapies and start incorporating that in your practice and how you started to gear towards Uh, specific types of nutritional interventions.
1: Like so many other people in this space, that begins with my own personal story. And uh, I was a pretty strong adherent to the low-fat diet when I was in medical school and residency. And one of the primary reasons is you know, I I looked at all the patients that I was treating in the hospital, heart attacks, strokes, cancer, all sorts of other things. And I was very determined to not be one of them. I did not want to be one of them. And uh, so I followed the dietary guidelines to a T, and I was on an extremely low fat diet, sometimes eating less than five or ten grams of fat per day uh because I was taught the lower the fat the better um and you know for better or worse, that did not work out well for me at all uh i um by the time I was in my late twenties, I had metabolic syndrome uh despite strict adherence to this supposedly healthy diet. Um, I was exercising pretty regularly, at least three times a week, uh, um, and doing everything else right. I was not excessively drinking. I wasn't using recreational drugs. I wasn't doing anything else that I wasn't supposed to be doing. And yet my blood pressure was high. My LDL was high. My HDL was very low. My triglycerides were through the roof. Um, I had prediabetes, and I was frustrated and pissed um <laughs> because <Yes. laughs> because I'm like, I'm doing everything right, and uh you know, year after year, the doctor kept telling me you got you gotta do diet and lifes you know diet and exercise, diet and exercise to get these things under control." I kept asking him exactly what diet, exactly what exercise I was doing it all. Um, he finally decided he was going to push pills on me. I said. No, you know what? And we'd been talking about it for a couple of years. I said, no, uh, I, not yet. Uh, give me six months. I, I'm going to try something else. I didn't tell them what I was going to try. But I'd, I'd heard through the rumor mill that the Atkins diet at the time uh, was, was somehow helping people improve their cholesterol, even though you're eating eggs every morning. Um, and I was in disbelief at that point. I really was. I, I was a strong skeptic. I I bought the medical dogma hook line and sinker, um, but uh, given that I was following the medical dogma and it was failing me miserably, um, and I'd heard these kind of rumors that you know the Atkins diet might be able to help, I figured oh that'll be my hail mary pass. I'm gonna I'm just gonna try. I'm, I'm I'm I am going to try this stupid Atkins diet. See what happens. I was fully prepared for it to not work out. I I kind of expected that it probably wouldn't.
0: Here's the interesting part. So as this is a story that we hear time and again from clinicians, which is such an important story here because the clinicians understand what it's like now to be the patient, right? To be the patient who lifestyle doesn't work for and just sort of gets written off for lifestyle. But you had the personal experience and you improved your metabolic health as you're saying here. But you are a little bit different because then you took the jump of improving your own metabolic health to then say as a practitioner for mental health disorders, I can use the same dietary approach to help people with mental health disorders. So it's different than just saying I can use this dietary approach to help people with metabolic health disorders because that's what worked for me, that's what I see in the literature. So how did you make that connection, that jump to say, well, it's working for metal, for metabolic health, now I'm going to apply it for mental health disorders? What did that look like?
1: So it's a great question. So the... the um. You know I personally I will share that I had um, recurrent depression uh, as a child and adolescent and but at the time that I was doing this um, you know the Atkins diet, I did not have clinical depression. I was working as a resident, I was working ridiculously long hours every week i I could tolerate working eighty hours in a row um, I wasn't having any serious problems um, but when I made the dietary changes within, you know, within a few months, I noticed dramatic changes in my mood, in my energy level, my ability to concentrate, my motivation, just my outlook on life. I uh, the the way I often put it to people is that I worked really hard to through medical school and through residency, um, and it often felt like a chore. It it really felt like I'm working hard. This is a lot of information. It's a lot of work. I, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm 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 getting a little bit burned out. And after I made this dietary change, I was like one of these happy, peppy people who just had this un this never ending energy. And I was no longer burned out, quote unquote. I I, I just felt great, and I had a lot of enthusiasm for life, and I recognized that this was highly unusual. I, I had never been like that in my entire life, and so I recognized, wow, this is, this is really interesting. I took a few years. I mean, at that point, the Atkins diet was extraordinarily controversial in the medical field. We did not have published studies in the literature yet, um, documenting that it was even safe as a weight loss intervention, let alone any any other use. And so uh, it took me a few years before I started using it with patients, but I I, I kept kind of thinking to myself, if this is having such a profound effect on my mood, energy, sleep, other things, um, I can't help but wonder what it might do for my patients with chronic treatment-resistant depression who have right. tried you know who've tried dozens of medications who've been in psychotherapy for years or sometimes decades who've even tried shock therapy uh, and nothing is working for them and so those were the first patients that I started with and that was probably 18 years ago
0: well that's interesting because you really started with sort of the the you could say the sickest of the sickest or the worst of the worst because you weren't starting with a person who has mild depression and let's see if if lifestyle will work instead of medications, you were trying the person who had sort of the most advanced case who who wasn't responding to anything. So if anything, you were it seems almost like a recipe to set yourself up for failure because if nothing's working, good chance that nothing's going to work. But my guess is you found something else, right?
1: <laughs> i I did. Yeah. Um, and uh, so in in several of these patients, Uh, in particular, the ones who were able to do it. Not everybody was able to do the diet, but in the ones that were able to do it and really stick with it, um, I noticed sometimes uh, dramatic and remarkable improvement in symptoms. Um, Patients recognized it. Family members recognized it. I recognized it. And it was unlike anything I'd seen with medications or psychotherapy, or even ECT in those particular patients. Because I have seen medications work. I have seen psychotherapy work. I've seen ECT work. But the reality is for far too many people, they fail to work. And uh, and so with these patients in particular, some of them had been my patients for years at that point. And we had tried numerous medications. And at best, we might get improvement for a few weeks or a month or two, and then the symptoms would be right back, so that was kind of the start and uh and then things went on i you know I wasn't really willing to c- talk about that publicly because i I really was fearful of my license and what yeah. people would what people would think I, like I can't be prescribing the Atkins diet to people in clinical practice and over the years we got a, a, you know a, a an entire body of literature supporting the the effectiveness and the safety of the Atkins diet and other low carb and ketogenic diets um, for uh, weight loss, for diabetes control, for other conditions and that started to empower me to to use this even more with patients mm-hmm. and and then I think the you know the thing that really forced my hand to kind of, make this a mission of my career was when I, you know, when I used this intervention with a patient probably about six years ago now, and I, it's a, it was a patient that I'd had for a long time with schizoaffective disorder, which is kind of a cross between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And uh, he had been my patient for about eight years at that point. I had seen him on all sorts of medications in and out of hospitals, nothing worked for him. And that's actually not unusual for patients with that disorder. It's a horrible kind of life sentence, if you will. And uh, even with the best of treatments, most patients with schizophrenia cannot work. A lot of them can't live independently. They continue to have horrible debilitating symptoms. Their lives are, you know, for all intents and purposes, at least for some people, their lives are ruined and uh and uh so one of these patients was obese, and he asked for my help to lose weight and uh, I really used this intervention with no expectation. I'd seen this work for depression, but depression and schizophrenia are totally different things mm-hmm. so i'm I'm now using this for essentially schizophrenia and um but uh again, I just used it to help him lose weight. I had no other expectations. And uh, sure enough, he started losing weight. Um, Within about three, two or three weeks, I noticed profound antidepressant effects. So he was kind of coming back to life. He was making better eye contact. He was more engaged. He just seemed happier. He was talking a lot more. I was kind of like, "Wow, what's gotten into you?" Like, <laughs> 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 you're, you're usually not this happy. What's going on? Um, and uh, and then it was. It, it took probably six to eight weeks, but at about that mark, um, he started spontaneously reporting that his hallucinations were going away, his long-standing paranoid delusions were going away. Everything was just melting away, and he was dramatically improving. Um, and quite honestly, I was dumbfounded. I was dumbfounded yeah. by
0: that. Yeah, I mean, that sounds so dramatic. So so fast forward to now and let's talk about sort of the state of the practice of ketogenic therapy for different mental health disorders. And in a minute, we'll break that down into specifics. But just the, the general state of clinical practice, um, where the science is, and how pervasive is it now? Because you know, we've got you, we've got Dr. Georgia Ede. There, there are a few people who are vocal about it, but are you still like in the vast minority feeling like you're climbing up the hill, trying to get people to uh, realize this, or do you think it's starting to, to get accepted more now?
1: It's a really great question. The, um, you know, so in terms of where we're at and the state of the field, so, you know, through the stories I just told, you can hear that I kind of came upon some of this through serendipity. I I, right. I had no expectation that I was going to discover these things. But now when I talk with audiences, I, I can put everything together. So the reality is that, you know, the ketogenic diet, a, a, a specific form of the ketogenic diet has been used for 100 years in the treatment of epilepsy. And, uh, you know, the official ketogenic diet was actually developed specifically for the treatment of epilepsy. And, you uh, we have a tremendous amount of neuroscience literature on what this diet is doing to the human brain. So we know that this diet is changing neurotransmitters. It's decreasing brain inflammation. It is changing ion channel regulation, like calcium signaling. It uh, you know it, it provides an alternate source of fuel to you know instead of glucose. It does all sorts of things. Um, that we know about because of this neuroscience literature, and lo and behold, we in psychiatry use epilepsy treatments like candy. Really, we we use them every single day in tens of millions of people. So you know, for those of you not familiar with this, if you've heard names like Depakote, Tegretol, Lamictal, Topamax. Um, Neurontin or Gabapentin and all of the benzos that includes things like Valium, Xanax, Clonopin, Ativan, all of those meds that I just listed, you probably know from the mental health field, but in fact they're all epilepsy treatments, um, and uh, they, most of them were actually designed for the treatment of epilepsy, and we quickly adopt them and use them in psychiatry. The reality is we use them for a, for pretty much every mental condition. We use them in psychosis, we use them in bipolar disorder, we use them in depression, anxiety, substance use, eating disorders, dementia. We we use them for a wide variety of disorders. And at this point, you know, the ketogenic diet is an evidence-based treatment for epilepsy. As I just mentioned, we use epilepsy treatments all the time in psychiatry. So it is not at all unreasonable to be thinking about using, you know, an evidence-based dietary intervention uh, in people with mental disorders. The um, Since I've been doing this work for the past six years or so, it's really interesting because, you know, when I started, um, there were very few people, Georgia Ede, myself, maybe one or two other people who were... Even talking about this publicly, um, since that time, um, it, there's been an explosion, uh, relatively speaking, of articles, <laughs> of articles on the ketogenic diet in mental health. And the you know the the really good news is that um, again, this isn't relying on anecdotes. This we have an entire body of literature, 100 years worth to tap into that is directly relevant to mental disorders. And so this is not at all a leap whatsoever. Um, And and so the, the way that I've been able to persuade a lot of leading neuroscientists and psychiatrists in this space is to just map out all of the lines of evidence. The lines of evidence, what do we know about schizophrenia? What do we know about bipolar disorder? What do we know about chronic depression? What do we know is happening in their brains? And then pair that with all of the science that we have on the effects of the ketogenic diet. And it's a match made in heaven. Everybody that I talk to is like, oh my God, why isn't anybody doing, like, why isn't anybody using this in patients? And I say, well, actually, I am. Does it work? I'm like, yes, it does. Read some of the case reports I've published. And they're like, they get all excited. Um, So the really good news is that we really do have, we've had leading neuroscientists and psychiatrists publish their own articles um, equally enthusiastic about, hey, this ketogenic diet deserves serious consideration. Like it, it really, the science completely lines up. We as a field need to be, really be thinking about using this as an intervention.
0: So what about the skeptic though, who says, well, look, these mechanistic theories kind of make sense, but... Show me the randomized controlled trial that it works. Show me that it works better than cutting out sugar and ultra-processed foods. Show me that it works better than a low-fat Mediterranean diet. What what about the skeptic who says that?
1: Lots of things to address in what you just said. So I would say, in terms of the randomized controlled trials of the ketogenic diet for specific mental health conditions, um, we we don't have. It depends on what you call a mental health condition. So we just got a randomized controlled trial of the ketogenic diet for alcohol use disorder, also known as alcoholism. We've got a couple of randomized controlled trials of the ketogenic diet and Alzheimer's disease. And for those of you who think Alzheimer's disease is only a neurological disorder and has nothing to do with mental disorders, you are sorely mistaken. Every single patient pretty much with Alzheimer's disease, every single one, just about 100%, Will have mental symptoms. they will have depression, anxiety, insomnia, agitation. About forty to fifty percent of people with Alzheimer's disease have hallucinations and delusions. Those are the hallmark symptoms of schizophrenia um so uh you know Alzheimer's disease is in fact listed in d s m five it It's on the border between what we call a neurological and a psychiatric disorder but uh, um. The reality is people with mental disorders are much more likely to develop that. So we've got some randomized controlled trials there. Um, We do have two randomized controlled trials of the Mediterranean diet, not ketogenic whatsoever, the Mediterranean diet for depression. Um, One study was not that great because they relied on patient self-report of their depressive symptoms, which is not a very rigorous study. But the other study was actually in treatment-resistant depression. Um, and they randomized patients to uh, the Mediterranean diet versus a social support group. And the people in the Mediterranean diet had a 30 something percent complete remission rate. And that compared to only 8% in the other group. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, some people promoting that dietary intervention would say, getting rid of the processed foods was probably one of the biggest ingredients in the success of that intervention. Um, The good news is that we now have randomized controlled trials getting underway in psychiatry with the ketogenic diet. So uh, I've been involved with three different research groups. We, We just got funding for three separate pilot studies of the ketogenic diet in serious mental illness which will include bipolar disorder primarily but also schizophrenia schizoaffective disorder in at least one or two of the studies.
0: Well, that's great news. Yeah. So that that is definitely going to be a big contribution to the to the literature because that's I mean, look, what, everything you're saying to me makes sense, right? To people who believe in low carb diets and ketogenic diets makes sense, but to the skeptic, you know, they're going to want to see more of this hard data. So that's great that it's coming. Um, but like you said, for people who who have tried everything and have no other, um, really have no other option, sort of like why not? But what about that person who has sort of a more mild case, you know, a a milder mild to moderate depression that you would usually just treat with an SSRI or, um, or even bipolar disorder that you would treat with lithium, like sort of the I don't know, I want to call it the easy to treat conditions compared to the ones you just listed would you recommend ketogenic diets for those patients as well, either as an adjunct to medical therapy or instead of medical therapy?
1: It's a really important question. And I know people in the low-carb and keto community really want this to be a first-line treatment right now. And for better or worse, I do not recommend and cannot recommend it as a first-line treatment. Um and uh, and the reason for that is that we don't have randomized controlled trials, uh, we don't have a good evidence base. And so, for licensed clinicians, licensed clinicians really are held to specific standards, and those are the standards within the medical community. And there are evidence-based treatments for all of those disorders, and those evidence-based treatments do work for some people. They do. And uh, so, I would say that people deserve a chance at at least two or three evidence-based treatments before you start using off-label treatments. Now, I would apply this same logic to other types of treatments. So I mentioned that we use off-label anticonvulsant medications commonly in psychiatry. You shouldn't be using an off-label medication as your first-line treatment. Um, So if somebody comes in with bread and butter depression, you really need to use a first-line antidepressant treatment and or psychotherapy. So people can do quite well with psychotherapy. Should a dietary intervention at some point become possibly a first-line treatment? I'm hopeful and I have lots of reasons personally and professionally to believe that Someday, I think it, it. In fact, it might be the preferred first-line treatment. But for right now, given where we're at as a field, and given that I want to encourage clinicians to keep their licenses and stay out of malpractice cases and stay out of you know trouble, uh, um, it's important that we follow guidelines. The good news, I guess, if you're a proponent of ketogenic diets, the good news is there are tens of millions of people out there who've already tried all of these standard treatments and are desperately looking for a better answer. So it's not like there's a shortage of patients to, to, who could benefit from this treatment. Um, okay. There really isn't. But, uh, but for now, I don't think it's reasonable for me to suggest that we should use it as a first-line treatment.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really interesting answer. Now, would you say the same thing about a Mediterranean diet and, you know, 30 minutes of exercise per day? Do you think that is um, evidence-based as a first-line therapy? And then if someone doesn't respond to that, then maybe you escalate it to a more intense diet of carbohydrate reduction?
1: So if somebody's coming in with major depression, uh to recommend the Mediterranean diet and exercise as the only intervention that you're going to offer them, no, that's uh, you would be in equal trouble. Uh, if you, do, you, you need to offer a medication or a psychotherapy. Now, if the patient refuses both of those, if the patient says, no, I don't want medication and I don't want psychotherapy, I'm only interested in a dietary intervention, then certainly the patient can choose that. So patients mm-hmm. have choice; it's ultimately their decision. But as clinicians, we have to inform patients of the standard evidence-based treatments. And right now, the Mediterranean diet is equally—you know—one decent trial does not make the guidelines. Um, so we need a lot. We need many more trials. Uh, we need more evidence. Um, and even in that one trial of the Mediterranean diet, it only worked in thirty-something percent that leaves a good 60-70% of the people for whom it did not work. So right. uh um that you know it's not like this is a home run treatment for everybody with treatment resistant depression.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And then of course the whole definition of mediterranean diet what does that even mean? It takes on di- so many different forms. You'd have to go back to how they define it specifically in that study, but even then only 30%. So so that's a great point.
1: I think just to, well, and just to clarify, so I think yeah. that if if people want to lose weight, um, so if 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 I have a patient who comes to me for treatment of depression and they want to, they they are primarily asking for help with their depression, I'm going to offer them at least the option of the standard evidence based treatments. If they at the same time say, "I'd also like to lose some weight." we have no reason to believe that an antidepressant will help people lose weight. There's, mm-hmm. th- We've actually had trials on that, and they, they don't seem to help people lose weight. So um, they do the
0: opposite. Many of them help people gain weight, right? <laughs>
1: they, they sure do. So, yeah. uh, so if that person wanted help losing weight, we have more than enough randomized controlled trials of low-carb and ketogenic diets for weight loss, more than enough that it is safe to say that you would clearly and easily withstand any kind of a lawsuit or any kind of, um, you know, accusations of quackery or anything else mm-hmm. by recommending uh, that for diabetes, we're we're getting there. Um, I'm hopeful we'll be there soon. Um, you know, some people would argue we're already there, and that's great. I would. <laughs> okay, great. Awesome, um, and you know, for the prevention of cardiovascular disease, that really opens a hot potato, as you know, um, oh, yeah. uh, or you know, goes to a, so, you know, so I think different different conditions. So if I've got somebody that's overweight, and I really want them to be able to use a low-carb or keto diet, I might talk to them about weight loss, and then let's see if we can help you lose weight which in and of itself has been shown to have some antidepressant effects for people. And we might use a low-carb or keto diet even as a first-line agent. But I would be clear in my medical record documentation, for better or worse, I'd be clear we're using this for the weight loss. We're using a standard treatment or patient is declining other treatment for their depression. And we'll see how things go
0: yeah I think that you certainly present a very balanced approach and but an approach that someone who's a ketogenic diet enthusiast can take and someone who's a little bit skeptical can still take because you still fall back on the evidence-based therapy. So I think that's a, a very balanced approach that that can appeal to a large swath of the medical population. So I think that's great. But one thing I want to unpack a little bit more with you is is we talk about low carbon keto diets and you know, when it comes to general health or general weight loss or even blood sugar management, there is a spectrum. There's, you know, strict low-carb, moderate low-carb, liberal low-carb, and you're likely to see a benefit at any point in that spectrum, possibly with greater benefits with the more carbohydrate reduction. But I'm curious if you think it's the same thing with mental health disorders because you know, you don't need ketones for weight loss, you don't need ketones for general health, but is there something specific about not just reducing the carbohydrates but also having enough ketone production that you think that really plays into the mental health benefits? Because you talked about the keto diet for epilepsy, which was this classic 4 to 1, you know uh, the ratio of fat to protein plus carbs was 4 to 1, so it was a very high fat diet. Which is different than sort of the modified Atkins diet or the what you could say the popular low-carb keto diet of today is. So, do you think it has to be a specific version of a low-carb ketogenic diet to see these um, impressive mental health benefits?
1: It's a really important question and one that you know we do not. Have clear answers as a field. I'll, I'll give you my opinion, but um, I, I just want to set the stage. The real answer, the trustworthy answer, is nobody knows for sure right now because we don't have enough evidence in the mental health field to be able to say with certainty. But I'll I'll call on some some other you know um, research and and data to to kind of inform the answer to that. So you know in the epilepsy field the, you know, there's a Cochrane review, which in the medical field is kind of this gold standard meta-analysis of the research done so far. And the Cochrane review says that the ketogenic diet, in fact, is an evidence-based effective treatment for treatment-resistant epilepsy in children and adolescents, only in children and adolescents. Why? Because adults have a hard time doing this diet, um, especially like a three-to-one or four-to-one ratio diet. Um, And so at least in the epilepsy literature, there are studies of it working for adults. I'm not at all trying to say it doesn't work for adults, but whether researchers can get adults to do the diet in research studies is another question. So, um, but that Cochrane review also said that the modified Atkins diet is not as effective as the four to one ratio diet. Um, They, they Looked at all the studies that were done, and there seemed to be a signal that the more intense the ketogenic diet, the, the more effective it was. However, that's not to say that you know you as an individual just need to find the dose that works for you. Um, so if you are an individual trying to treat depression or bipolar or schizophrenia or whatever, you just need to find what's going to work for you. In reality, in the, in the epilepsy literature, there is another dietary intervention called the low-glycemic index diet that is also an evidence-based treatment for epilepsy. Now, low-glycemic index diets can sometimes be ketogenic, but more often than not, they are not ketogenic. But essentially, what a low-glycemic index diet is doing is you're getting rid of a lot of the processed carbohydrates, you're getting a r- rid of almost all sugar. You're getting rid of a lot of flours-based kind of foods. And you're eating whole foods. You're, it's not a, a low-carb diet per se necessarily, although it can be. A low-carb diet yeah. is certainly low in glycemic index as well. But, um, but you can eat some foods like whole fruit, whole vegetables that may have carbohydrates, but because those carbohydrates are getting absorbed more slowly and with fiber included, um, the glycemic index is lower. And mm-hmm. that that can be an effective treatment for seizures for some people. So, um, so I think that, you know, the way that I think about this, because some people get frustrated with this concept that maybe, you know, they're like, well, which diet works, Dr. Palmer? Which one works? I'm like, well, you know, if you give me a medication that we use in any medical field and say what dose works, what dose works for everyone, I would say you're being silly. You clearly yeah. don't understand the medical field. We we often will have a starting dose, but sometimes that's too much for patients and we have to lower the dose. Sometimes it's not enough, we have to raise the dose. Sometimes we have to add more medication. So We we always are tweaking. We start with one thing and then we tweak and increase, decrease doses as needed or as the patient can tolerate. And to think that we should do anything differently with dietary interventions is just silly. You know, my sense, to get back to your original question, is that I, I do think a dietary intervention that results in ketosis is a very powerful intervention for a lot of my patients and i have seen direct correlations between the level of ketones and symptom reduction and when patients and when patients still remain in ketosis but you know if their ketones drop from 3.0 their blood ketones drop from 3.0 down to 0.5 they can become floridly psychotic they can become depressed or suicidal, even though they still have ketones at 0.5. Hmm. So, um, so for some patients, in my experience, the higher the ketones, um, within reason, you don't want them. You don't want them too high. There is like a a, a decent range that you want them in. Um, but uh, there there does seem to be a direct correlation between the level of ketones and the effect. That's not to say that I think exogenous ketones are the answer because I'll jump right. to the chase. I don't think exogenous ketones are the answer. I think that the level of ketones in your bloodstream is a reflection of a vast array of complicated metabolic adaptations your body is making in response to the diet. And, uh, and so it is a good biomarker for all of these things that are happening in your body and your brain, but just increasing that biomarker with exogenous ketones likely is not going to be the magic bullet that everybody wishes it would be. I wish it would be, I really do, because that would be so much easier than making people do a diet and trying to get their ketones, you know, greater than two or three. But
0: yeah. Uh, Well, I sure hope we get some research about this. I mean, because like you said, it'd be so much easier from a compliance standpoint to just drink your ketones. Or you could also see a a hybrid, you know, a moderate low-carb diet with exogenous ketones. Or you could also introduce intermittent fasting to raise your ketones. I mean, there are are different um, strategies you can imply to to raise your um, ketones. And it brings comes back to the question of compliance. Like, like you said, it would be so much easier just to drink your ketones rather than to comply with the diet. I mean, we know for the general population to comply with any type of diet or lifestyle intervention, it tends to have a poor long-term adherence. Um, and that could be in the best of circumstances. So when someone suffers from chronic depression or from bipolar disorder, I think we have to admit it's not sort of like a straight line of improvement, but there are you know peaks and valleys and ups and downs as you go along your journey. And when you have some of those va- those valleys and and some of those down moments. I'd imagine complying with a diet would be very challenging, much more challenging than the average person doing it. So I'm curious what your clinical experience is there, and what sort of advice you have for people to weather the ups and downs and to try and improve their their dietary compliance over the long run, knowing it's not a straight line.
1: Yeah, it's a really important question. Um, so I have, you know, I have patients, and I've written case reports about patients who've been doing this diet for their primary psychiatric condition for you know, 13, 14 years. Uh, I have patients um, in my own practice, six years now, 150 pounds lost and kept it off. Um, and that is the first patient that I described, the one with schizoaffective disorder. He, he basically lost 150 pounds, is still in ketosis on the ketogenic diet, six years in, and, um, it's actually the primary concern from psychiatrists and uh, neuroscientists is, you know, we get the science, Chris, you're, you're, you're selling us on the science, but how the hell can you get anybody to do this diet? <laughs> and, uh, and what I tell them is, guess what? They're doing it. I'm getting yeah. some people to do it. Am I getting every person to do it? No, I'll be the first to admit it. So I have some patients that can't do the diet because they are impoverished and buying meat and whole food type things, buying MCT oil is a lot more expensive than buying Fruit Loops and Pop-Tarts. and uh, And they just don't have money. And we do not have systems in place to provide free food to them, let alone free nutritional counseling or dietary support or anything else. So, uh, you know, insurance won't cover this right now. Uh, I am hoping for the day when insurance will recognize that if this is, in fact, a powerful and effective intervention, it's a lot cheaper than a medication. Um, It's a lot cheaper than 14 medications all at once. (laughs) So, uh, I think insurance companies, you know, I'm 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 working for the day when we can persuade insurance companies to start getting more involved and maybe even pay for people's food for 6 months or a year just to get them going. Um so that uh so that they can stabilize and then start to become more independent. You know, at the end of the day the way that I get most of my patients to comply is I basically use a similar model that I use in trying to help an alcoholic stop drinking alcohol. You know, giving the advice is really easy. Stop drinking alcohol. It's straightforward. It's so easy. It just makes so much sense. And yet, when you give that advice to the overwhelming majority of alcoholics, they can't seem to do it, not very easily. Um, And that's kind of the definition of alcoholism. If they could stop easily, they wouldn't really be an alcoholic and but but we have treatment programs all over the world based on these models and and what do we do we we talk with them about practical interventions how are you going to manage your cravings what are you going to do when you have a stressful day What are you going to do when people are shoving a drink in your face? And what are you going to do during the holidays and family and friends are telling you, oh, come on, you can have just one. Really? You can. You've been so good all year. You can have one. You know, we, but you really have to support people in all of those ways because it's not intuitive. So providing an opportunity for people to get support, either from a clinician, a, you know, a dietitian, practitioner, whatever, or, or a support group um, where people are coming together to all talk about these types of issues and share insights. How do you make the meals palatable? Um, what are foods that you can eat? What are foods that you can pack with you when you're out and about, and and you know that it's going to be hard to find appropriate foods in a restaurant? Um, which restaurants can you go to, and what can you order there? Like you can go to McDonald's and Burger King and get highly ketogenic meals. And uh, you, you really can. It, it it it's not rocket science, but most people don't recognize that and or they don't know how to assert themselves with the weight stuff. So you got to go in and say I don't want a bun. I don't want ketchup. I don't want this. I don't want that. Um, yeah. but you can
0: and That's a that's such a great answer about the need for support and I guess that's the problem because you don't need that same infrastructure to give a pill, to give a prescription, to take a pill. You don't need all that counseling, but you do for the lifestyle interventions. And that's what makes it so frustrating that that's not part of the medical system right now. So, I, I mean, I, I, I'm sure we're, we're on the same line there that we need to make that part of the medical system to have that baked into the therapy, just like you're saying for the insurance coverage. And uh, hopefully that day will come. I know you're a big advocate for that day coming. And... Probably help further helping further the field so that we get to that point, which leads me to how how else you are helping further the field, not just by giving your talks, not just by treating patients, but also by contributing to the literature. Like you and Nick Norwitz have written a, a wonderful review recently, and you've written a number of papers. Um, Tell me about what else you're involved in right now, from from uh, an academic and, and literature standpoint, to help further this field.
1: I think that you know I've I've published a fair amount in you know in ketogenic diet for mental disorders. We've I've I've helped create a coalition of researchers and uh, philanthropists and others to move this work forward. Um, so as I said, we've got clinical trials underway. There are a lot of people who are really interested and passionate about this work. You know, I'll be honest with you, the biggest thing that I'm focused on is, you know, as an academic psychiatrist, I have been fascinated with this question of how the hell can a diet change a chronic brain disorder like schizophrenia? That Is dumbfound, it has been dumbfounding to me and is still dumbfounding to most clinicians because it flies in the face of everything we've been taught about what schizophrenia is, but also about what bipolar disorder is, what chronic depression is, what alcoholism is. And you know most of us think of these as brain disorders that involve chemical imbalances those are the chem, you know the neurotransmitters in your brain but we know that hormones play a role like cortisol we it's thyroid hormone we know that stress plays a role we know that all sorts of things play a role and i've been profoundly interested in this question of what exactly is happening in the body and the brain it's resulting in these sometimes miraculous treatment responses at least in some people and how and can we put that together with the existing literature and the existing theories and make sense of it yeah. and and the reality is that that has happened and so i'm not at liberty to share all of the secrets yet but um but that will be coming in about a year, and I actually, as crazy as this sounds, um, I actually think this could result in a paradigm shift for the mental health wow. field, um, because it simply it simply integrates all of the existing theories for mental illness into one comprehensive theory um, that you know, anybody who follows my work or has even listened to this conversation, it's not a stretch for you to imagine. I'm going to argue they relate to metabolism. Right. Um, and uh, but in order to really understand what that means, you have to understand what metabolism is. And the majority of people don't have any clue what metabolism is. Um, they think of metabolism as burning calories and fat and nothing more. Um, and in fact, metabolism is so much more than that. So in order to really understand how everything fits together, you have to understand the complex world of metabolism. And that means you have to understand the complex world of life, living organisms, (laughs) and what keeps them living and how they use food and environment to stay alive. Um, But when you put it all together, it actually starts to fit. And I think it offers some dramatically new models of how to understand and treat mental illness, and it's not a, you know, it's not going to be a surprise to this audience to know that, well, one of the treatments is, gosh, dietary interventions like the ketogenic diet, and uh, they can have a profound role, But, um, but I'm actually much more focused on the field of academic psychiatry and neuroscience right now. And trying to, trying to help the field understand why would a dietary intervention make such a difference. So, um, so I'm working with a whole group of people, neuroscientists, clinicians, um, philanthropists. And we are really hoping to, uh, to possibly make a big splash and a big change in the mental health field in about a year from now.
0: Well that sounds amazing. I'm very excited to see what comes from that and and good luck to you and congratulations on all the work you're already doing. Um now that would be the perfect place to to end this podcast on the high note to wrap it all up, but I realized I forgot a question I wanted to ask. I wanted to I wanted to ask you a little bit more about eating disorders. And so it's going to be a little out of out of out of flow here, but I think it's important that we touch on that. So Um, Just to to recap, I'm so excited for for what you're building for the future. But now just to rewind and and talk about eating disorders. You know, it's controversial, especially with a ketogenic diet, because a number of people have gone on record saying nobody with an eating disorder should do a ketogenic diet because it just brings out restrictive eating behaviors and can make make eating disorders worse. But yet we have case reports, and you have mentioned um, that ketogenic diets can actually be used to benefit eating disorders. So what kind of advice can you give to somebody with an eating disorder who's struggling in their own mind, is this something I should or should not do because I've heard complete polar opposite things about whether a very low carb or ketogenic diet can help it or hurt an eating disorder?
1: It's a great question. And the answer, the real answer is a long and complicated one. I, I So I'm going to start with, it depends on what eating disorder we're talking about. So there are three, you know, there are different eating disorders. I'm going to put them into three main buckets. There's anorexia nervosa in which people are starving themselves and usually grossly, very much underweight. And it, You know, anorexia nervosa is the single most deadly psychiatric illness. Just want to say that. As a a percentage, more people die from anorexia nervosa than any other mental disorder. So um, that needs to be taken very seriously. Um, Then there's bulimia nervosa, uh, where people are binging and purging. And there's a wide range of what their bodies might look like. People can be obese. And have bulimia. People can be grossly underweight and have bulimia. And then there's binge eating disorder. And binge eating disorder is where people binge eat, but they do not compensate for those binges. And so as a rule of thumb, the majority of people with binge eating disorder are overweight or obese. Um, But not all of them are, but most of them are. And, uh, And so it Those are different disorders, and and the biggest difference that I'm going to just stress is this difference between whether you have fat stores on your body or not, and that is critically important. When your body is in starvation mode for a prolonged period of time, it means that you are eating into your muscle and other organs for an energy source. And people with anorexia nervosa have been eating into their heart muscle as well. And uh, as well as their you know liver and everything, I mean, they, their organs are shrinking. That is a profoundly different state than somebody who weighs 400 pounds and has a lot of excess energy stores on their body that they can tap into. So that's probably the most critical distinction. the The reality is that I have published some case reports, and I've worked with some researchers. There's a research study right now underway of the ketogenic diet um, for anorexia nervosa, um, but they are augmenting it with ketamine injections. So it's it's um, the the ketogenic diet plus ketamine injections for anorexia nervosa. There's one case, um, a woman that I've spoken with, um, uh, who uh, has basically gotten her anorexia, her long-standing anorexia, into what appears to be remission. Um, it's going on a year uh, now, um, and she is profoundly better um, through this kind of dual intervention of the ketogenic diet plus a ketamine, one round of a ketamine injection. Hmm. Um, you know, one of the case reports that I published of schizophrenia going into lasting remission, that per, one particular woman also had a longstanding history of anorexia nervosa. Um, so as a rule of thumb, I would say, if you have a history of anorexia, and certainly if you have current anorexia, you must do this with a mental health clinician, period, hands down, no no questions asked. Do not do this intervention on your own. Don't even try. I would actually go so far as to say if you have bulimia, you also need to do this, hands down, with a mental health clinician. If you have binge eating disorder, those are people who, again, tend to be overweight or obese, and they can use this intervention... In the same way that they would a weight loss diet. And, you know, there are some published reports, um, more case series that when people do that, uh, they find that their urges to binge, their quote unquote addiction to junk food can seemingly evaporate or go away. Mm
0: -hmm. And,
1: um, you know, if you are overweight or obese, With binge eating disorder, I feel less concerned about your immediate safety, like you have to do this in a rigorous way with controlled supervision. Certainly, if you can do this with controlled supervision with a medical professional, I strongly encourage you to do so, because people can get into trouble um, with eating disorders. And it's just important that you recognize what your eating disorder symptoms have been, and that you are monitoring them and and really following them. So for some people even with binge eating disorder, you know, I think part of the part of the recommendation against restrictive eating patterns for these people comes from a really long history of clinical observation. And this long history is that, you know, people with binge eating disorder in particular, they often want to lose weight. And so they have they have tried innumerable diets. It's not like they haven't tried a diet. They've tried lots of diets, and oftentimes those diets are restricting. Um, They, you know, I'm not going to eat as many calories. But restricting for them can be eating in moderation. So let's be clear about what restriction is. It's if once you have to implement rules around how much and when you can eat, that may feel restrictive to a lot of people. And so if you're putting somebody on a 2,000 calorie diet, that's a restriction. Um, it, it just is. And if you're telling them they can only eat three meals a day, that's a restriction. Um, and some of those people, when they restrict themselves, they end up becoming overwhelmed with hunger. And they just get ravenous and famished, and then they go on a binge, and then they start binge eating. And at the end of the day, at best, that ends up being a yo-yo diet. At worst, it ends up being like a plateau, gain more weight, plateau, gain even more, plateau, gain even more and it's just this awful vicious cycle in which the problem's only getting worse the and and the 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 attempts at restricting don't result in any meaningful health benefit um but the consequence of that restriction results in even bigger binges and even more weight gain and even more health problems. So I think that's where, you know, just to help at least people understand, I think that's where some of the dietitians and mental health professionals are coming from is that they've seen that pattern time and again. And so when they hear ketogenic diet, they're like, "Oh my gosh, here we go again. Another restrictive <laughs> diet and then people are going to be on this vicious yo-yo cycle." Um as somebody who has, you know, professional experience with ketogenic diets, I really do see a lot of potential and hope for this treatment. I really do. I think that it can be a very powerful intervention. um, And that if done correctly, people should not have overwhelming hunger. They shouldn't. I I tell people, eat as much as you need to eat, but you've got to eat the foods that you're allowed to eat. So in in the first week that might mean they're eating more calories than normal and that's okay with me when i'm when i'm in putting someone on a ketogenic diet i tell them look weight loss is not our primary goal right now even if i'm working with somebody whose goal is weight loss i tell them in the first week i'm not worried about losing weight i'm worried about controlling hunger and that means we need to get you off of the foods that you're used to eating. We need to get your ketones up. So that means that your body can use your fat stores as a fuel source. And once we do that, if we do that effectively, your hunger signals are going to go down. And then we can focus on you losing weight And because it will be so much easier and safer at that point.
0: Yeah. Such a great answer, I mean, we use the term restrictive diet as if it means one thing, but clearly as you just explained, restriction that makes you count calories and drives your hunger is very different from restricting the food you eat in a way that means you can eat whenever you want, your hunger takes care of itself and you don't have to count calories. Those are two completely different definitions of a restrictive diet. I like how you summed that up and and talked about how it can have an impact there. Well, once again, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, I think this has been a wonderful uh, discussion about mental health disorders, about ketogenic diets and nutrition in general uh, for mental health disorders. And you teased us with what's coming over the next year and I, I, I'm so excited for what you're working on and I can't wait to see the results of that. Uh, so thank you Thank you so much for joining us and we'll make sure that people know where to find you uh, so they can hear more about what you're up to.
1: Thank you, Brett. Thanks so much for having me.